Congratulations, you are officially not Christers. A Christer is somebody who only comes on Christmas and Easter. So you made it, and I'm glad that you're here. If you're uh, new to New Hope, welcome. Very glad that you're here with us this morning. We're about to celebrate baptisms in a few minutes. Um, I want to remind you that today the book four for E2E study is out there on the table, so pick one up when you go out there free, and we would love for you to have one so that you can follow along with the E2E series. This particular morning, we're going to be in uh, Exodus 14, and we're going to be doing the shortest teaching I have ever done, I think, because there's 17 baptisms to take place. Yeah. Um, I want to add my thanks to that of Michael's and, and what Emily said earlier. Thank you for helping us last weekend. Um, there were 3,000 people last weekend at the services. Yeah. And uh, Jeff told me at one point there was 110 cars parked over at the bowling alley. So we're very grateful to what City Limits did to help us with that. That's been just really helpful for us. Let's pray together before we step into this. Would you join me? Lord God, I thank you for every single soul that is here and every soul that is joining the broadcast right now. We're so thankful that we can look at your word and have a visual image of what it means to have new life in Christ through these baptisms this morning. So thank you for giving us that reminder that we have something that we can look at that reminds us of what it means to be buried with you and to be raised to new life. Thank you for the imagery that's coming out of this passage this morning and how we can put these pieces together. We ask that you would do that through the power of your Holy Spirit. Show us how we can speak into the lives of other people who desperately need to hear the message of hope. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Philippians 2, 2, 9 through 11 is probably one of the most familiar passages to the church. Let me remind you of what it says. God highly exalted him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Powerful passage, but many people don't realize that what Paul was doing there was quoting the book of Isaiah, in which the exact same thing was said in the Old Testament. Look with me, Isaiah 45. By myself I have sworn, this is God speaking, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. If you read both of those closely, you realize that's talking about the future because clearly we understand that isn't true today. Every, when it's stated there, means all. It means all of humanity will bow to Jesus one day willingly and unwillingly. Some will do it willingly. This auditorium is full of individuals who will bow willingly and currently do with your lives. But there's some who will bow unwillingly. Now, clearly that hasn't happened yet. Many people do not bow the knee to Jesus. Many do not confess Jesus as Lord. Yet the Bible promises both the Old Testament and the New Testament that it will happen. The question is, when is that going to happen and how? Well, when can be answered very quickly. When is when Jesus returns. At the second coming, Scripture is very clear. Everyone will recognize Him as Lord. The bigger question for us this morning is how? How? What kind of circumstances bring glory to God to the degree that humans will actually humble themselves 
and willingly or unwillingly submit to Him, even those who are in rebellion. Well, to understand it, we need to go to Exodus 14, where we left off at. It gives us a bit of an explanation, a glimpse into this. Last time we were together, we left Pharaoh and his team, his army, his military, standing on the seabed of the Red Sea. They're at the bottom of the ocean, it's completely dry, and they're looking up at walls of water that are around them. And there is a lightning storm of all lightning storms flashing around them and what the Bible describes as tornadoes that are in the area and an unbelievable shaking of the ground. Well, we have to back up a little bit further. What actually brought the military power of Egypt to the shore of the Red Sea? Well, we understand from what the Bible describes that the Israelites were suddenly departing from Egypt. The slave labor workforce made their way out of the country. After 400 years of slavery, the mighty God of hand brought redemption for them by bringing death to the firstborn of the nation of Egypt. But to those who believed God's word, they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So as these previous slaves are not only alive, they're actually been set free and they're on their way to the promised land. But when the Israelites head out, they actually start going in the wrong direction, and God has to tell them to stop because they're going the way that most people would go. They go northeast towards what we think of as southern Israel today. They're heading to Philistine country. God says, I don't want you to go that way. Look with me at Exodus 14.1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Phiha. This happened in the first service too. I know you're mocking me. Fi, hi, hi, fi, hi, hi, ra. Fi, okay? We'll go to that. Between Migdal and the sea. Somebody's down trying to help me right now. I've got a little speech going on. But between Migdal and the sea, you shall camp in front of Baal, okay, Baal Zephon, opposite by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, and they did so. So God commands Moses to take an impossible route. Nobody goes that way. But God's saying, you're going to go that way, and the result is it's going to bring glory to me. And everyone, as you just read there, everyone will know that I am the Lord. In other words, knees are going to bow as a result of this, Moses. Tongues are going to confess who I am. And that glory will come to God, whether or not the pharaohs of this world will yield to him. Let's keep going. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Reality sense in and this immense loss of economic power that they had, this vast slave workforce is suddenly gone. So they not only lost a massive economic asset, they've got 400 years of training. They're already conditioned to take orders and Pharaoh can't bear that kind of a loss. But God wants Pharaoh to think that Israel is miserably lost and that they're trapped. So we, we find that he's going to pursue them He's going to go after them with his entire military strength, and he's going to trap them against the sea because he thinks that Israel's run out of options. But God has said, I'm going to be glorified through this. So in Pharaoh's mind, this is going to be like taking candy from a baby. 
He's convinced I can get these people back. So he initiates a very quick chase, verse 6. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel. Now, it doesn't take a military genius to see that God put His own people in a very vulnerable position. Their lives are being threatened, and God's going to get glory out of this vulnerable position. They've been trapped between these natural barriers. So Pharaoh puts together a military division to chase them. You might remember a couple weeks ago, I referred to these chariots that he selected to go out. They're like an Abrams tank. They have a sniper on board and they have a very skilled driver and these are military technology of the day and he musters an entire division to chase after them. Back at the Red Sea, the people of Israel, they can begin feeling the ground shudder. There's a shaking, a vibration because of the approach of the heavy chariots and the horses. They know that they're in trouble, but it's too late to run, verse 9. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. So the former slaves are in serious trouble. Any direction they look, to the south and to the west, it's mountains, to the east, it's the sea. And to the north and the northwest, there's an army closing in on them. And as their hope fades, they not only cry out in despair, they turn on Moses, verse 11. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's just stunning to me how quickly we forget the past, the hard things that we've gone through. When we get into new places that God has clearly led us to, we look back and say, I only want to go back there. That was better. This is just the beginning of their complaints, especially when they say, were there no graves in Egypt? They're incredibly sarcastic for a group of people who are scared because back in Egypt, there's lots of pyramids and there's lots of tombs. They're known for that. They're saying, was there nothing there that we could go to? Verse 13, but Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Now from what God previously revealed to Moses, he's obviously very, very confident about what God's going to do. He knows there's going to be a destruction of the enemy. He just doesn't know how. And he doesn't know when it's going to happen because instead of being wiped out, they're getting closer and closer and closer. And so the people of Israel then begin begging God for mercy and Moses joins them. Look with me at verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Just pause for a moment. In your notes this morning, you actually won't see it in your notes this morning. There's a Hebrew word called homah, and it means like a wall. When we think of a wall in English language, we would think of like a hallway. So perpendicular structures on either side of us, but a passageway through. 
So a hall, or with walls on either side, is this word homa. That's what God is saying to Moses. This is what I want you to do. Uh, further, Steven Spielberg, when he created the uh, Prince of Egypt movie, the animated version back in the 1990s, he hired a really good group of consultants because they coached him on this specific scene that you see painted here. And when you go back, and maybe you'll look at it later, you'll see that the water is actually forming a V-shape in the midst of the movie. And it flares out from the V-shape, and it creates a wall through the Red Sea. Well, Stephen had very good consultants who told him exactly what this passage was saying. And then it goes further when God says, here's what I'm going to do, verse 17. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be, and here's the word, kabod. I will get glory, I will be honored, I will be heavy among them. I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am, again, kabod, when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. So verses 16 and 17 are really clear, it's this contrast. Moses, here's what you're going to do. Verse 17, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to do this. I'm going to do this. And as a result, when you obey my orders, God is going to be glorified. So God works through Moses to form this valley in the water. And while all of this is going on, the angel of the Lord that's in the pillar of fire is moving from the front to the back and becomes their rear guard. Verse 19, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. So what's light on one side, the Bible's very clear about the description, is pitch black darkness for the Egyptians on the other side. Really, really eerie when you think of this tall tornado-shaped cloud that's spinning as a pillar and it's massive, big enough to cover two to three million people. And yet it's dark on one side and it's light on the other side. And then verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept back the sea by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right-hand side and on their left. There's the word wall again, homa. So with a single gesture, Moses raises the staff. The rod that God had allowed him to use to throw down in front of Pharaoh when it became a snake. The same rod that God said, I want you to touch the Nile River and turn it to blood. That same staff, God said, I want you to raise that. And with a single gesture, he does. And the Bible says, as a result, the Lord God drove back the sea. And through the benefit of the nightlight of this pillar of fire, the people of Israel are clearly able to see the water peel open in this huge V shape. Verse 23. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit in all Pharaoh's horses. His chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. Now, while this is developing, God unleashes, according to what Scripture describes here, as a spectacular lightning display full of rain and the earth begins to tremble with a shaking. And even the most arrogant of the Egyptian warriors are terrorized at this point. We've learned this from David's writing in Psalm 77, verse 16. The waters saw you, O God. 
The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Uh, I'm assuming, I'm just speculating here, that the Egyptians don't know that they're on the seabed because it's completely black. Scripture says this is taking place in the middle of the night. They're covered by this cloud. They can't see the light on the other side. But can you imagine when they're on the midst of the seabed and then the lightning bolts begin flashing and this wall of water is revealed on either side of them, what kind of fear would you have in that moment? This is a really, really bad time for a flat tire. And that's what happens. In verse 25, we're told the wheels come off the chariots. The word that's actually used here in the Hebrew language is like God removed the stem that the wheels rode on. And for their mindset, it's enough already. We don't want any more of this. Let's just forget about Israel. But it's too late. Verse 24. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them. It refers to the morning watch there, and the morning watch is from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's the third watch of the night. The, the watches were broke up this way. From 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. is the first, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. is the first watch. From 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is the second watch. From 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. is the third watch. You probably have heard the phrase before that it's darkest just before the dawn. That imagery comes out of the third watch because it's usually that time that the moon is settling below the horizon. And if there's clouds at all, it becomes very, very dark. Well, they're covered by this pillar of cloud. This was traditionally the time when kings would go to war, when they would bring their attack right at this morning watch time. Well, on the seabed, the lightning is flashing and, and the chariots are useless. And we discover through the Bible that one of the ways that God actually gets glory is by humbling mankind, those who are in rebellion against Him. He actually has to force them to be humbled. We see this in the next verse, verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. So with a simple raising of the hand again, God works through Moses one more time, and this wall of water that's been in a V-shape now forms this raging torrent, and wave after wave after wave becomes a crushing, thunderous rhythm as it collapses on them, and the Red Sea returns to its usual place just as dawn breaks. And the Bible says there's not even one of them that survived. Verse 29. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Let me take you back just for a moment to verse 17 and look at what God has said Himself that was going to be the result of this. I will gain what, church? I will gain glory. God gets it whether people are willing to give it or unwilling to get it. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Same water. Same water that was the instrument of deliverance for one group of people becomes the instrument of destruction. And in the midst of both of those, God is glorified both by those who willingly enter into the water and those who unwilling are refusing His commands. This is where I want to attach it to baptism because you're going to see Pastor Gary come out in a minute and begin baptizing and the the greenhouse team, they're going to do the exact same thing. What I, I want you to see this component. While the parting of the water is absolutely staggering, it's so impressive. It's greater than any of the 10 previous plagues that we saw back in Egypt. What I find here is a greater miracle than the parting of the sea, but it's so understated. To be sure, God is demonstrating absolute authority over creation. It's on full display. Only God could do what He's done here. For the one who spoke sea water into existence, telling water what to do is exactly within God's capacity. This is what God declared to Job in chapter 38. Look with me. Verse 8, who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. Here shall your proud waves stop. God commands the sea and everything that's in it. Jesus did the exact same thing, except he didn't need a dry seabed to walk on. He just walked right across the water. God said in Job 38, this is what I do, Job. I can set the tide patterns. I tell the shores where they're at. So separating water and piling it up like a heap, that's not as difficult as turning a human heart. It's an understated dimension that's positioned here for us. God is turning human hearts at the seashore. See, what you're seeing here is Israel is learning to follow God's Word. I'm picturing a group of people in my mind who are desperately, hesitantly approaching that seashore. Only a few verses earlier, we saw them want to go all the way back to Egypt. We're going to die here. We don't want to be here. Take us back to what's familiar and take us back to what we think is safe. But God has just said there's a new beginning on the other side. And you've got to step in and you've got to trust me and you've got to believe me, yet they are full of fear. See, church, what's being stated here is they're willingly entering into the waters. And that demonstrates to us a complete surrender of their heart, the humility that is necessary to follow God's Word in faith. They're believing God's Word that that water is not going to crush them. So what I see them doing is they're making a break with the past, which has to this point, been demonstrated by a slave mentality. They've been slaves. They're willing to return to the bondage of the past. But now, in the face of overwhelming redemption, there's a reason I asked the guys to leave the word redeemed on the stage this morning, carrying over from Easter. Because of this story, 
in the face of overwhelming redemption, when they can see the way that God has made for their salvation, they're receiving what God is offering and they're stepping into the waters. If you will, they're being baptized in that moment. They're willingly stepping in and they're trusting God. Functionally, we're looking at some individuals who are willing to say with the physical actions of their life, I follow God now. I believe God's path. Now, to be sure, the waters do not save. The waters didn't save them. God saved them. Amen, church? All right. So the waters that you're about to see in baptism, the waters don't save you. We do this because we are saved in Jesus Christ. So the waters don't save us, but functionally, these are individuals who are willing to say, I'm following God's path. I'm doing what He called me to do. When they get to the other side of the seashore, this is where we're going to leave it this morning because we'll pick it up next week in chapter 15. When they get to the other side, Moses breaks out a top 10 hit that he just wrote. Let me show you part of it. Verse 13, in your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. They're on their way to Mount Sinai. But before they do, Moses breaks out in song and he sings to them an original composition about everything that God just did. The action of entering into the water means that they're willingly destroying any possible return to the bondage of their formal life. And they're making a public declaration. Yep, we were once slaves to sin. We didn't listen to God, we didn't obey Him but we believe that we have a new beginning. No longer slaves to the past, but set free by God Himself and then given new life with God. And as a result, God gets the glory. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You that You get the glory in all of these situations. We've, we fail to understand that everything is about giving You glory. So some of us do do it willingly and some unwillingly. God, I thank you for what we're about to see this morning in baptism, that these individuals are doing it willingly and they're glorifying you with their life. Thank you for this example. We pray that you would use it for an impact on our lives and for individuals whom we interact with. We pray for that in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen.